The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Happy to have you once again, ladies and gentlemen, joining us on Trip Talk. Today, we are going to be trekkers. I'm not sure we should use the term Trekkies. You might get in trouble, but I think we're okay to say Trekkers, as in great fans of Star Trek and the Star Trek movies in particular. We're going to be talking to Jess Winfield in just a moment, who has written a gorgeous article and lushly photographed as well, an extensive piece for American Road Magazine in the current summer issue. We wanted to get to that before the fall issue overtakes us. Back in a minute with that, but first I wanted to tell you there is great news for American Road Magazine readers and lovers of the open road, celebrate the golden age of Route 66. The cars, the music, the food, the friends made along the way, all brought together at the International Route 66 Mother Road Festival in Springfield, Illinois, held September 27 to 29. Unlike many festivals, this one offers free spectator admission. Don't miss the spectacular 2000 Car Friday Night Classic Car Cruise into downtown and the unforgettable burnout competition on Saturday. The International Route 66 Mother Road Festival is coming up quickly. Get your motor running and head out to historic Springfield, Illinois. Welcome back. Happy to have you listening to Trip Talk. We're available on a podcast as well. We broadcast on 1150 KKNW Seattle, after which it is slightly edited into podcast form and available just about any place humans with ears can listen. And some of those ears are a bit pointy when you talk about Star Trek. I wanted to read a piece of a, an article. It's the lead, really, from just a gorgeous piece of travel journalism written by Jess Winfield. Jess Winfield is an editor of American Road Magazine and an L.A.-based author and screenwriter. Well, here's how he writes. Under Star Trek, the motion picture, the first of the motion pictures, for that large subset of sci-fi geeks who self-identify as Trekkers, the reunion of the original cast of the Star Trek television series that ran on NBC from 1966 to 1969 was a long-awaited dream come true. The voyages of the Starship Enterprise with William Shatner's brash Captain James T. Kirk boldly leading his crew where no man had gone before it was a ratings disappointment in its network run. Yeah, a ratings disappointment in its network run. But the popularity of the series exploded in syndication like a photon torpedo. And it only gets better from there. Let's say hello to Jess Winfield, our guest today. Jess, I'm so delighted to have you on Trip Talk. Thanks, Gary. It's great to be here. Great piece of journalism. Love the article. And I wanted to ask you, why don't we find out about this? People, I think, some anyway, were stunned to hear me say and then repeat that the TV show in its original run on NBC was a ratings disappointment. That is amazing considering the fact that it is a worldwide phenomenon still celebrated today. Yeah, it's true. It was. Uh, I think it did pretty well in its opening season, but it had some uh, time slot shifts. It was moved to a, a very late time zone, and uh, so kids who were actually uh, sort of really into it, as I was um, around age, or that been seven, eight years old, um, uh, weren't able to tune in, and uh, they got they had some budget cutbacks, and uh, the script notoriously sort of fell off in. Uh, in season three, and um, away it went. 
was only a, uh, a fan write-in campaign led by actually a, an acquaintance of mine named Bijo Trimble, who was um, a costume uh, set dresser on the show, who sort of spearheaded a, a letter-writing campaign um, uh, to, to try to uh, point out to Paramount the mistake they had made. And that, uh, when it got into syndication and um, uh, people started watching it in the afternoons, as I did as a kid when I got home from school in middle and middle school, um, it, it, it really sort of bloomed into, into a thing where Paramount had another look at making a television show or possibly a movie. And somebody in a meeting at Paramount must have said, you know what, we're sitting on a gold mine here. What are we doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And in fact, I think I'm going to correct my own story. I believe that it was uh, the fan campaign that actually brought it back for its third season. It was actually going to be canceled after season number two. Oh, you know, now that you mention it, Jess, that is familiar to me that it had to be rescued from cancellation. Yes, that's astounding to me, given the worldwide popularity for decades since and in its various iterations. Yeah. The Eventually, and you have the backstory on it much better than I, Star Trek, the motion picture, there must have been some point where they figured, OK, if we are going to take this syndicated television series, which generates Trekkers. For some reason, they don't like being called Trekkies. It sounds diminutive, I guess. But uh, if all these Trekkers are around internationally, how about we turn it into a motion picture while we sta still have just about everybody, in fact, maybe everybody, in the original cast available and willing to do the picture? Yeah, and I think that was, uh, that was very much in the works. The plan was, um, at first, and the, the, the project that had the most juice behind it was to make a, a television series um, to, to relaunch it. Um, and there were, uh, you know, as, as happens in Hollywood, there were various teams of writers brought in, various committees. Um, names were thrown around from uh, Ray Bradbury as a writer to Francis Ford Coppola as a um, producer to... Uh, to Shiro Mifune of um, Japanese film fame as a Captain Kirk, um, but uh, but for for various reasons uh, nobody could decide on a script that they liked, um, and then finally um, the the syndication run got so strong that Paramount decided they could really make a, a motion picture out of this. Unfortunately, for the story, I think. What happened was they said, hey, we have this television uh, uh, pilot that's, in, that's already pretty far along and in development. Um, perhaps we should just turn that into uh, the feature script. And that's what happened, which is why Star Trek The Motion Picture is a little slow. It feels uh, like a television episode that's been stretched out into a feature-length film. And sure enough, in your article... When you talk about the second picture, the Wrath of Khan, which is when that rocket was really lit, there you regard the motion picture, you actually refer to it as a snooze fest, certainly by comparison. Yeah, well, you know, I, I actually, of course, went back and rewatched every single one of these uh, films um, when I received the assignment to do the article. And um, the motion picture is entertaining enough, but it does have that long central section where um, the crew is going into the entity that is Viger, and they are all sort of hypnotized by it. There are shots of Sulu staring at the 
then there's a shot of Chekhov staring at the screen, and then there's a shot of the screen, and then there's another shot of Chekhov staring at the screen. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's a snooze fest. Perhaps hypnotic would be a better word. There you are. And yet, in the motion picture itself, and here's where we turn to the American road section of our show, as a matter of fact. This is for road travelers, road trippers. I have been, it was two years ago now, come September, I have made the pilgrimage to Yellowstone National Park. And what's interesting for me about this, Jess, in reading your article, is that I want to kick myself, because it was late afternoon when we entered the park from the north, and we did, went through, and therefore passed, Mammoth Hot Springs. We were going to stay the evening at Grant Village, so that meant we had about another 75 miles to go, and we wanted to get there before dark. With that being the case, we only just looked side, uh, to each side, back and forth. Oh, Mammoth Hot Springs, yes, that's famous. Okay, and we got a glimpse and we had to move on. I understand that there is a wonderful feature there that I hope to visit myself in person someday, and that is the Minerva Terrace. That's part of Mammoth Hot Springs, and for Star Trek The Motion Picture, it had a prominent part to play. It did. It's actually um, the very... Uh uh, I, I guess it's the second scene after after the Klingon birds of prey encounter. Um, uh, uh, well, at any rate, it's the first it's the first uh, sort of terrestrial scene where um, where Bach is on his knees about to receive um, confirmation in his Kolinar logic um, discipline studies, uh, and uh, he gets this. He gets this. Um, uh, Is it like a, a medallion? Yeah, yeah. He's he's about to receive the medallion, and um, uh, that is actually on the on the planet Vulcan, which in the television series was portrayed in appropriately volcanic terms, as they took right. Vulcan very literally and made it a a bubbling red volcanic planet with a red atmosphere. And uh, they tried to do the same thing uh, for the movie, and uh, so they went to the bubblingest, most lava-y place in <laughs> the United States, if not the world, um, Yellowstone National Park and Minerva Hot Springs. Um, and you're not kidding there. either. Yellowstone is a geothermal colossus. It really is. And, uh, and as we've learned in... Um, uh, what is the what is the movie where Yellowstone explodes? Um, uh, yeah. Isn't it called There Goes Yellowstone? <laughs> um, it's Woody yeah, Woody Harrelson and uh, John Cusack, I believe. Um, yeah, where the biggest what is the the biggest volcano waiting to explode on the planet um, finally goes uh, takes out most of North America with it. Um, yes. But of course the uh, the same uh, geothermal uh, hot water that that um, powers Old Faithful um, continues on to this mountain terrace uh, where there's a spring, and the over the over the millennia the um, deposits coming down from that spring have deposited um, shells of of uh, calcium carbonate uh, that provides this stunning background. It's so colorful and. Uh, and otherworldly, and that was used as the backdrop for uh, for Spock's ceremony. Which then, because um, 
they had, of course, three days or something to do the shoot, and of course they didn't get all of the shots they needed. They then had to go back to Paramount Studios and recreate the entire um, hot springs in a tank uh, on a soundstage here in Hollywood. That would be so hard to do. That's amazing to me. Well, this is an opportunity for me to ask you, Jess. You are a screenwriter. It's my opinion and my observation that people, generally speaking, have no idea how difficult it is, how methodical you must be, and how meticulous to generate a screen a screenplay, a piece of screenwriting, and then hope that it goes somewhere. As you're sitting there hammering away at your keyboard, you don't know what the outcome will be, but you have some high hopes, you have some aspirations, and then you wait to see if there's anybody willing to pitch it. Does it get green-lighted, as they say? What you do takes a lot of courage and a willingness to accept rejection or move on after a rejection and try again. Yeah, well, um, it is a it is a very difficult business, notoriously, uh, for exactly that reason. And I wish that I could say that I'm as as brave as you posit. The fact is that um, much of my screenwriting career, I was hired based on a single sex script that I wrote um, for the original animated version of The Tick back in what was that? In 1991, 1992, okay. uh, and Disney hired me on the basis of that. And uh, I spent the next 10 years as a screenwriter writing and uh, story editing and then later executive producing and being a showrunner on Disney animated television properties, which included writing some feature-length scripts um, uh, for uh, the Lilo and Stitch franchise. Um, But I, during my peak period in Hollywood, always had people coming to ask me to write scripts rather than writing scripts on spec and trying to sell them in advance. I, too, have great respect for screenwriters who do that because it's a, it's a tough job. I can imagine it being very lonely. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, you know, most, most writers are, are perfectly happy sitting in their caves and, and, uh, and pecking out work <laughs> and I, as much as any of them. But um, uh, it's... Uh, that is a particularly lonely job, as opposed to um, television writing, where you're mostly in a um, in a room with a bunch of other writers pitching jokes, and uh, hopefully one of yours makes it in. Right, right. That that is how I understand it goes. I did want to ask you about that, and thank you, Jess. Now let's move on to Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Now, instead of Yellowstone, we're in a very different venue for some essential filming there. The Cow Palace near San Francisco. The Cow Palace will be remembered for many, many things, and not just the cows, but the Beatles played there. There were two Republican conventions at the Cow Palace in 1956, the second Eisenhower Convention, and then much more raucously in 1964, known as the Goldwater Convention. And that right. was all at the Cow Palace. How in the world did that wind up being in a Star Trek movie? <laughs> Indeed. Well, the Cow Palace is nothing if not a multi-use facility. I mean, uh, yeah, the San Francisco Warriors played there, the Beatles. I myself saw uh, Yes play there in hmm. 1980. Um, so uh, <laughs> when they were shooting uh, uh, Wrath of Khan, 
Um, they needed a, a soundstage to blow up the Reliance, and um, they had a particular shot that they wanted to get, which required a very high ceiling. They wanted to shoot, uh, shoot it from, from very far below with a, a very advanced number of frames per second and all sorts of technical things that writers like me don't necessarily understand. Um, but the Cow Palace had a big enough ceiling, so they made a model of the Reliant. Um, uh, actually, I think it was one of the one of the main Reliant models, but then coated in wax so that it could uh, explode real good um, when mm. they hung it from the ceiling and shot it from below. So when you see Khan Nunyan Singh uh, set off the Genesis device, thereby blowing himself up, and he thinks he's going to blow up Captain Kirk, but he had another stink coming. Um, when that explosion happens, that is happening inside the same building that tells those Republican conventions and San Francisco Warriors games. And I take it that because of your description of the construction of this craft to be blown up, the tech crew had one chance to get it right? Yeah, well, one chance to get it right without... Uh, um, without blowing up the budget, I have to do it again. <laughs> yes, I can definitely see that. One of the joys. Yes. The Cow Palace too is that its um, its history as a you know as a as a showcase for bovines um, back in the day it was what it was built for. Um, unfortunately, a few months after it opened, World War II intervened and became a um, a halfway house for troops. And then a, a large garage where jeeps and tanks were um, were uh, uh, mechanically fixed up for shipping back overseas. Um, and its, its original purpose got lost a little bit, although it still does host the occasional cow. And it does still exist. They haven't torn it down. That's correct. Um, there's uh, <laughs> it's one of those sites that's subject to ongoing. Shall we tear it down? Shall we keep it up? Um, discussions. Um, I was actually there most recently because the uh, Dickens Christmas Fair, still um, uh, until uh, at least last year, um, was holding its uh, its recreation of Dickensian London um, in the stable portion of, of the Cow Palace, which um, gives it a very Dickensian feel indeed. Then when we get to Star Trek Three the search for Spock, because they needed to restore his soul. Spock dies. Well, there's a cliffhanger for you. Got to bring him back to life. And so in the search for Spock, the uh, producers decided that they would use a famous fountain on the campus of Occidental College in Los Angeles. And there's a full page picture of it in the current issue of American Road Magazine. So they found that this would, for whatever reason, I don't know who suggested it to them, but it seemed architecturally appropriate for them to create the scene in this space. Right. Um, it, is, uh, it is a little curious. I really think that what they, what they selected for was just the fountain that appears in the foreground, um, which uh, was created by a uh, professor of art at the uh, at Occidental College, which uh, calls itself the only liberal arts college in Los Angeles. Um, it's a very sort of um, a sort of a, uh, an alien version of a of a lotus flower of a, of a lotus flower is the way we, the way we described it. Um, uh, it was uh, 
sculpture. And, Correct. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a very beautiful piece. And behind it, there uh, there's a set of stairs, which are also famous as um, stairs where Barack Obama um, gave his first political speech as why young Barry Obama uh, when he attended Occidental first semester. Um, and they covered those up with uh, a beautiful matte painting of the rest of the civilization of, of Vulcan, which is what they use as the establishing shot. Fountain in front, matte painting in back. I love that. All these different places. Now, it's architectural, but also so much natural beauty. How, by the time we get to Star Trek V, the final frontier, how did Yosemite factor in? That's extraordinary. Yeah, well, uh, the opening sequence of that, of course, is um, Kirk battling his greatest nemesis, which is, um, of course, his own um, burning ambition and <laughs> competitiveness and need to triumph over the impossible. He's climbing El Capitan, uh, uh, doing a free climb of it, which, of course, actually happen until um, was recently done as as uh, chronicled in the movie um, uh, pre, uh, God, I'm completely blanking on names of movies today. Um, I wish I could be of help. I, I like to think I know movies, but I've forgotten a lot of them, I have to admit. Yeah. Um, uh, free, uh, free, free Solo. 2018. Um, Alex I did not see that. Oh, yeah. I won't go see it because I have a little bit of the uh, fear of heights. And when I saw the trailer for that, I was like, no, 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 no. And no. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so the opening sequence is, is Kirk versus El Capitan, um, ironically, the captain versus the captain. And uh, about uh, halfway up, uh, Spock comes and, and and floats in on some um, rocket boots, um, which was achieved by, they actually did shoot it in Yosemite, um, but Kirk is climbing a fiberglass set um, with real Yosemite in the background. Uh, and Spock is standing on a crane um, in that opening shot. Um, although they did do a, a very impressive actual stunt for that um, for that sequence uh, with a stuntman doing what was then uh, the longest um, uh, stunt fall of that type ever ever performed in the U.S. Um, before Spock comes along and saves them. They were very daring in making these pictures, too. Uh, going back to the explosion there in the Cow Palace, was that not the set where they used a camera that captured 2,500 frames per second, and that remains an unparalleled feat in filmmaking? Yeah, that's that's very true. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You go back, and uh, I went back and looked at that explosion several times um, while I was writing the article. And, um, yeah, it looks like a shot of a, of a starship exploding, of which we've seen dozens in the, in the Star Trek group. But um, this was... This was, to me, it didn't look particularly special. It was just another one. But um, the length sometimes that directors and producers go to um, to get just the right shot um, often really isn't appreciated in the, in the final product, um, even when it doesn't uh, end up on the edit floor. 
Yes. And anybody who ever watched 2001 A Space Odyssey, a Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick masterpiece can tell you about what it is to see a director who is willing to go to any lengths to get the right shot. <laughs> right. Just amazing. Right. Exactly. It, which it, in a way seemed inspirational toward the Star Trek movie franchise anyway, where you have magnificent special effects, but not always a lot of dialogue. The imagery has to carry a lot of the movies. Yeah, and I think that particularly pertains to uh, um, Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think that they very much had, had Kubrick in mind um, when they did that long special effects sequence of the Enterprise crew going through the, the pretty, pretty mesmerizing lines um, that are Voyager's energy field, very much like um, like uh, the Voyage, um, the special effects of Voyage in 2001. Yes. Jess Winfield, tell me that you are working on another article for American Road Magazine or will be shortly because I would love to have you back to talk about your writing and all the places you've seen. You really do excellent work. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, of course, uh, um, American Road is keeping me very busy. I have a couple of other articles in the summer issue, one of which is uh, about, uh, also about film locations uh, of Planet of the Apes. Um, which I really enjoyed doing. Um, ironically, in fact, I was um, I was at uh, Malibu State Park writing that article when um, my wife was visiting Vasquez Rocks, which is a very very famous Star Trek location that we didn't get to write about in this in this series. It ended up on the editing room floor. Uh, but uh. right now, I'm working on a story about uh, Watts Towers in, in uh, South Central Los Angeles. I can't wait to read it, Jess. This is going to be great. Jess Winfield, editor of American Road Magazine, L.A.-based author and screenwriter. I look forward to our next visit together on Trip Talk. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me, Gary. I wanted to tell everyone before we close, American Road's 2019 Picture Perfect Photography Contest celebrates art in every form. Art inspires and influences people in many ways. Submit a photograph of your favorite subject that inspires you to travel and celebrate life. Whether it's a photo of a beautiful sunset, a quirky roadside attraction, or a neon sign, let your imagination soar. Send us your picture-perfect photo. You could win $500 and have your photograph published in an upcoming issue of American Road Magazine. Visit AmericanRoadMagazine.com for details and entry instructions. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk. We always love having you with us. Along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine, we remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue of American Road Magazine. Until next time, drive safely and dream well.